0: This week on the Zone of Truth, Griffin and I are joined by Haley and Chris to discuss the July seventh Paizo releases with a heavy focus on Lost Omens, the Milwaukee Expanse. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll the wheel, save. You're in the Zone of Truth. And we're back. Yeah, we are. We are, man. And this is a cool one. I've been excited for this episode for a while. Yeah. Time coming. You in particular have been excited for this one. I have. I'm a big fan of the region we're going to talk about. But first, I got to know what you're drinking, Griff. I'm having a Braxton Brewing Company garage beer. It's a premium lager.
1: Ooh. Love these garage beers. How about you?
0: I, I also love them. That was a, a staple of our little HLP retreat that mm-hmm. we had a little while ago. But I am drinking a beer from Sun King Brewery. This is out of Indianapolis, Indiana. It's called a GFJ. That's an IPA, but I don't know what those letters stand for. It's like the BFG. You're probably right. Yeah. You're probably right. Instead of Big
1: Friendly Giant, it's the... Giant, giant, fucking Jotun.
2: Giant friendly beer.
1: That isn't is less giant. GFJ is giant
0: friendly jellicle. That's probably what Mm. it is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's good freaking juice. Good freaking juice. Actually, that is probably the closest to what it actually is. It could just be grapefruit juice. Maybe. I mean, there. It actually does not say an ABV on here, so (laughs) it's got a grapefruit on the front. Twenty. If it is, we're in trouble. All right, well, let's go ahead and introduce the other people who are joining us today. How are you doing, Haley?
2: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Are you drinking anything tonight?
2: Uh, no, I just finished a, a fairly strong Pisco Punch, and so that's kind of where I'm at.
0: All right, good. I love that energy. <laughs> um, Chris, what do you bring to the table tonight? I am bringing myself and...
3: A very tall, tall, tall founders. This is like two cans st- stacked up on each other. Ooh.
2: Are they in a trench coat?
3: They're in a koozie. Does that count? Same thing. Okay, it's pretty
4: close. What if underneath it was actually just two cans taped together <laughs> with a in a koozie, and he's hiding Griffin, it? Don't reveal my secrets. <laughs>
0: Don't tell anyone how I got the 24 answer. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how that would work. You'd have to, like, cut the bottom off one and the top off another and then, like, solder them together. No, the answer is glue. Just a lot of glue in between them. We got some engineers in here. We figured it out. Okay, well, I guess we'll talk after this. But, folks, we got to talk about these releases. We... I've had an opportunity to dive into the Milwaukee Expanse. Each of us have taken a portion of the book and read through it and have some thoughts to share with each other. And then after that, we're going to have Chris do a little bit of a breakdown of the Fists of the Ruby Phoenix Adventure Path, as well as the module Malevolence. Now he's read those. It's going to be spoiler free, but we'd like to get an understanding of what they are and kind of what you think of them. You think you might be able to help us out with that, Chris? Oh, Absolutely. All right, well, well, I hope you're ready. Let's kick this off. Lost Omens, Mwangi Expanse. What is this book? It is a giant reference book. It's 311 pages. It's a lot. It's a lot, and it's a good band. For oh, yes, <laughs> someone call this book a beautiful disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they call it. No, a disaster. they wouldn't call it that. But for reference, I, I did take a look at some of the other relatively recent paizo hardcover releases i looked at the apg that was the advanced players guide we reviewed that on the show a while ago now about a year ago i think but that was 271 pages and then the ancestry guide is another one i looked at that was 143 so this is i think the biggest one probably since the core rulebook dropped i might be wrong about that but if not i'm very close it may be the biggest book in the lost omens line i think so yeah yeah Because you got the Pathfinder one, you've got Legends. I know neither of those are particularly large. You've got the Ancestry Guide, you've Mm -hmm. got
1: uh, Lost Omens World Guide, which was about half this size. Yeah,
0: that's true. So this book is broken up into several different sections. There's somewhat of an introductory section called Reclaiming the Expanse. There is a history section. There is People of the Mwangi that's a delve into a lot of the common, uncommon, and rare ancestries that you may uncover in the Mwangi Expanse. There is a religion section, a geography section, and a bestiary. So the way we're breaking down our review today is that each of us have gone into these sections. We each have had an opportunity to check out the introductory section and the history section. And then for the people, religion, and geography. We're each picking something from there to do a little bit of a deep dive on. Like I said, it's a big book, so we weren't all going to read it cover to cover. Although I intend to at some point because I did like it. Yeah. All right. So let's start with some initial observations. We've all had an opportunity to dive into this book a little bit. What do you guys think? We'll actually review it at the end, give it a rating. But generally positive, generally negative, what are you thinking? I, I had a pretty positive response to this. How about you, Chris? I think it was very positive. I think it set out to
3: flesh out a lot of the unexplored area of the Moongie Expanse that Wani didn't really touch on or cover, mm-hmm. and if that was the intent of the book, I think it succeeded at it. Now, a lot of people people can have different intentions for what they think the book should be or should do, But and I agree that it doesn't do everything that most books do, but from a location perspective, it's great.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with that. And we'll certainly break this down further in the ratings, but I think it fulfills the promise of the premise. Dive into the Mojave Expanse, get people of color writing about a region that is inspired by their cultures and really grow this area. I think they do a good job of that. There are some things that I wish we saw more, but we'll get into that later. Haley, what'd you think?
2: So much juicy content. Yeah. Like really, that's that's the thing is I am not one to read a book ever cover to cover when it comes to a rule book. No, thank you <laughs> ever. I do really enjoy my books where I'm able to go and like look up one thing that I'm interested in and do a deep dive. And it feels like I can do that with this book. With a lot of the content of it, I'm able to, oh, that's a cool concept. I bet you this book's got something in it if it's, it's around the Mwangi Expanse as a whole. So that I always enjoy, and I think this book really fleshes that out so well that I enjoy that side of it. Um, I like I like details, but I only I like them when I want them.
0: <laughs> Understandably. Alright, Griffin,
1: and your thoughts? I agree with Haley. I think this really doesn't read like a rule book at all i don't think that's the intention of it because Mm -hmm. this book is far more story than it is crunch but the art beautiful every page has wonderful art the writing is great here the storytelling in here is phenomenal and my favorite part about it i think is that this book is written in a way that a lot of the first edition setting guides were in the way that it has it has great kind of gazetteers for cities and gives you a lot of information on the cities it has a lot of hooks and i think that's something that the muwagi expanse was kind of lacking because it's this huge expanse mm-hmm. and we know there's a ton in it but without this book we don't really know what the hooks are yes you know there's a there's a demon ape lord in in the jungle and couple other cities that maybe we've heard of before, but this fleshes out so much more than that. And so I think this is a homebrewer that plays in Galarian's dream to read this book. It's got so much content for that.
0: Yeah, this is definitely a really, really good starting place if you wanted to build your own thing, but pull from the Paizo lore. So let's get into the content. First of all, we have this introductory segment called Reclaiming the Expanse. This is something we've all taken a look at. There are several just basic things it covers in the beginning. And as I kind of walk through what those subsections are, the three of you feel free to chime in and let me know your opinions or what you liked, what you didn't, what you think is important to bring up in each one of these little sections. We're going to run through them pretty quick. So what does this do? There's a little bit of an introductory paragraph that sets the setting up. Then they dive into what is actually in the Mwangi Expanse in a Cities and Nations segment. There are a couple what I feel like are very important sidebars that are super cool to put up at the top. There are two in particular that I think are very important for people building PCs in a Mwangi Expanse setting. One of them is called Questioning Outsiders. The other is called No Place Like Home. So the first one is intended for people that are building a PC that is going to play in an adventure that takes place in the Moongi Expanse, but their character may not be from the Moongi Expanse. So what this does that I didn't really see in first edition guides to the Moongi Expanse and the regions that are covered in this book is it asks questions directly to the player and then answers them. So the questions that they asked are, what sort of effect does your presence have on what's already here? How does the expanse challenge and broaden the PC's understanding of themselves? And how does the expanse raise questions about the PC's understanding of where they came from? I think these are important questions to ask if you are going to a setting that, one, maybe you're not super familiar with, and maybe folks like us who don't have the cultural understanding in real life of where some of this stuff was pulled from, we ask these questions of ourselves and then we're better equipped to treat the setting that we're going to play in with respect. Yep.
1: Yeah. I think they're important to include. It's as important for a GM to read those sidebars too, because it's how you're going to present NPCs as well, uh, mm-hmm. especially the no place like home section. Um, how are you going to present NPCs without that kind of cultural understanding Well, the, the questions asked in that are helpful to get in the mindset of an NPC from the Wongi expanse, so.
3: I really like what you said about better equipped too, because I think if you are a group that is going to play in the setting, that these are really good introductory things to have everyone read so that everyone is aligned and centered around their frame of reference for approaching this content and the setting. I think having everyone on the same page about how you're interacting with the world is important.
2: Yeah, that's, I, I definitely think that's Universally important when you're playing Pathfinder, but it's also especially important when you're playing something that you are not personally familiar with. And this is it's great that they have this up front, and it's right at the beginning. So it's right at the start of this brand new area.
0: Yeah, it, it really rocks. And to build on that, too, there are a couple other subsections in here I really love. There is a subsection on language that directly calls out that, that hey, the common of this region... Is Mwangi. It, these people have their own language and there may be differences in dialect from city-state to city-state or nation to nation within here, but this is not the like anglicized Taildane language that may be spoken in the north. This is their own thing. It's kind of cool. There is another section called Adventurers, which does actually start opening up some of the topics that are going to get hit on later in this book that are difficult to play around and play with yeah the cool thing about this section and the divergence
1: from one e is it clear as day points out in this section the long expanse is not just a jungle or it's mm-hmm. not just a you know it's not just a a tribal excursion from outsiders that's not what this book is that's not what you're going to get in here it points out very clearly that the varied types of adventures you can have here and points to direct examples that are further in the book that you could flesh out into an intrigue adventure, a high magic fantasy adventure, uh, an urban city adventure that's all in here, which is really cool because that's not what the Mwangi was in first edition. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it was, in my opinion, the Mwangi before, it was It was just the jungle. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Something on the, on the language I wanted to point out is I noticed the same kind of thing crop up in the Ruby Phoenix. They have some adjustments saying you know the common for this setting in your characters can be the the languages in T ja. and some of the special languages there you can you know maybe swap Sylvan out for some of those. Um, another cool point that I, I think this made in the Ongi's Pants too is that like on the accents that you use, you don't feel like you have to use or like try to use what you think is a. "Quote unquote authentic accent for the region, because I, I know for the Tianjia, I am not equipped to do a respectful like accent of like what I think the analog is for that region. Sure, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it does a really good job of saying the people here are so
1: varied. Like, if you have someone from this area, you know they're going to be heavily influenced by Chilaxian speakers. They're going to have
0: they're going to speak this kind of way. It's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And I think also in this." this adventure section that we've talked about, it does open up that this book is going to tackle some very difficult things that were, you know, maybe opened up in first edition that maybe are intrinsic to some of the, the themes that go along with the region. They directly call out that brutal institutions of slavery and expansionism exist or have recently existed and these acts have ripples and leave scars that this book explores. That's it's gonna be a theme later in the book. There's difficult stuff in here outside of role-playing that this tackles, that you could explore, maybe you you leave. But I do like that this book challenges those difficult themes head-on. It doesn't ignore them. You don't get washed away. So besides that, we have a section on threats, just some of the stuff you may come up against in The Expanse. I didn't take a whole bunch of notes on this little section. I don't know if you all did. Man, they just like
1: keep hammering in preparation this felt yeah. this felt very much like leave the forest like you found it type situation and like tread lightly
2: I think it's fascinating too I mean on that prep they are like if you are not a seasoned person you had better go with someone who's seasoned because you need to know how to check like I think they mentioned the smell color taste of like poisons and foods and like all of these different things like it's really it's basically saying, you need to know what you're doing. It's kind of like, more. how am I
1: supposed to have a level one adventure here?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think you start in the city.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess you do. They they certainly do hammer home the notion of learn the expanse before you go to it, if you are an outsider. I think this is where I get one of my favorite little pieces of art in the book. It's the iconic cavalier from Wani. I think he's the same guy for the archetype in Tui. And he's overburdened in big, heavy plate armor. And he looks fucking exhausted because it's hot and humid.
2: One of my favorite things, too, when they talk about these threats, they just ended the threat section as a whole with a, as beautiful as the region is, it blooms with peril, which <laughs> they just described so well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, they say that a ton. That's every region in Glare. Absolutely though. it <laughs> is. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, you're going to Uslav? Probably be prepared for undead. Right? Yes. You
0: know?
3: Monsters here! Get your monsters here! (laughs) There's monsters all over the place.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, this introductory Reclaiming the Expanse section concludes with a state of the Mwangi. So this kind of delves into, at the present time in Galarian history, when this book would be written. So I think that's 4721 AR. These are some of the things that are going on that could inspire campaigns or may factor into characters that come from this region or visit. There is a whole quote here that I kind of like. The Moongi Expanse finds itself in a state of retelling its own story, one individual exciting tale at a time. The external perspectives that come to meet it don't dictate its existence, but instead end up shining light on how this once mysterious sprawling Galarian is and has been evolving. I think that's a really, really cool way to describe this particular setting. And I think it's a little self-referential here because that to me feels like almost... Paizo acknowledging that at one time, we approached this with a different perspective, an outsider looking in, but we're exploring this now from the inside out as well. Yeah. Which I think is pretty cool and does set the tone for the rest of the book. All right. Next big section here is history. And this is basically about eight pages of timelines and historical overviews. This is, I think, where I would point someone who wants to start learning about the Milwaukee Expanse first, because you read through a couple of these pages, and to Haley's earlier point about what she liked in this book, I think you start here and you'll see something cool that catches your eye.
1: Yeah, and then you're like, I wonder what happened to that place. I wonder. Uh...
0: Yep, and you dive into it later in the book. So, it takes you from negative 60 to 80 AR to present day 4721 AR. And Everything is discovered. Shori city of Co. history of Angazan and Usaro, Mujali Elves, Makembe Dwarves, Mataji, uh, probably butchering pronunciations. I apologize ahead of time. Shackle's Pirate History, Sargavan Establishment in Fall, Old Mage Jatembe stuff, which is clearly setting up the upcoming Strength of Thousands AP. That's just scratching the surface of some of the stuff that they delve into here, and there's some really cool things.
3: I thought it was interesting in, the, in a section in the Age of Destiny.
0: They spent two big old
3: paragraphs on one city, Zetremba, which mm-hmm. uh, no spoilers, but it comes up in the slithering a little bit too. I don't want to get I don't want to get political or anything, but I know that in our network we have some pro Farazman players. Mm, would I be wrong in <laughs> saying that? Mm. You better be careful what you say next, Chris. So, in this, they laid out a really interesting history of the city. It was a Farazmans city that they built up, and it sort of became the dominant uh, city in the region. And a, a sister tribe settled nearby. They were all Ferasma worshipers. There was a sister city of nomads that settled nearby and also started rising in prominence. And the Farazmans felt that that threatened them, and they started using some of their religious dogma as a pretext to invade that city. So we, we have a, a really uncommon example when, I know Pharasma's neutral, but generally they're portrayed in a good light, at least on, on our shows too, but mm-hmm. there's an instance where they were instigating issues and violence, and the other city ended up resorting to demonic influence to try to combat that, so they're not great either, but they were pressed to do that by the Pharasmans, which I thought was interesting. It just spirals away from there, but that thought it was a really interesting example of a, a point in the Pharasman history in this region.
0: You know, I I am personally offended by that. You painting (laughs) that for Esmond's in a negative light. So the truth um, has to come out. Just be careful. The truth is out there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But those are kind of my thoughts on the history section. Anything that anybody else wanted to call out?
1: Yeah, I don't want to belabor the history section. Just read it. It's eight pages. Uh, But like the Corsair Wars are really cool. Yeah. (laughs) I I like everything pirate. So everything pirate in here is, is scratches that itch for me.
0: On the premise of not belaboring this, can you give me like a 15 second hook to get people reading that? The Corsair Wars. What do we got? Well, the second
1: Corsair War is between the free captains of the shackles and the dwarves. It is a dwarf pirate war. (laughs) If that doesn't, if that doesn't get you wanting to read about them, I don't know what will. Dang. I don't, yeah, there's no hope for you if that doesn't, that That doesn't, doesn't, if that doesn't get you. How does it, the logistics
3: of it. (laughs) I <laughs> the flying tech the flying ships they got were pretty crazy too around the age of destiny I was didn't expect that to be popping up here the flying cities there's a Shori empire that had yeah. that built these flying like ships and maybe, maybe not cities but
0: just giant flying things oh and, dude yeah they built flying
3: cities was there
0: previous lore in Wani about that yeah the city of Ko is referenced in Wani I think there is a there's specifically I think it's referenced in this book as yeah, well the ru- it yeah the route definitely is yeah, yeah, yeah. There is an entire Pathfinder Tales novel. I can't remember the name of it right now, but I've read it where people go to that city. Uh, and it's man. pretty cool. Usually, I'll try and remember what it is and tell you about it later. It kind of rocks. Awesome. Yeah. Alright, so next section is called People of the Mwangi. What is this section? Basically, you have 10 pages a piece for humans in the Mwangi, what kind of different types of people, civilizations they have. You have three different 10-page sections on different um, civilizations of Milwaukee elves, two 10-page sections on different types of dwarves, one 10-page section on halflings, one on orc people, and then six new completely statted ancestries and several small snippets of other ancestries. This is a pretty big section. They pack a lot in there.
1: It's chunky for the existing races, because I don't think any of us picked an existing race to talk about. No, I don't think so. Uh, for the existing races, if you want to play as a character from the Moongi, there are so many flavorful
2: options it's in here. It's very cool.
1: It's really cool. And you are truly doing not, yourself a disservice if you don't read your section. Yeah, and that. I think I think while this, a lot of this is not mechanical, I think there are only a couple of feats, like one per race or two in some circumstances, this is another instance of just like the story and the flavor overruling that. And this is great backstory material and great just character origins material here.
0: Yeah, I'll probably reference this a couple more times. I went back to an old one supplement and reread parts of it to prepare myself for this. It's a supplement called Heart of the Jungle. I think it's one of those soft cover like 60 or 70 pages. Mm-hmm. It is the go to Mwangi Expanse reference for one E, and alone, each one of the different human civilizations has one paragraph. And in this, they at least have a page of pop,
5: Yeah,
1: let
0: let alone 10 pages for each one of the Elven, Dwarven, Halfling civilizations. I don't know that we even get into it.
1: Is Mitunbe one of the peoples written about in here?
0: Yes. Shit, I feel like I should know which one. I, I think like you he's should. I think he's I, I I definitely decided. I don't think I've ever officially said it.
1: I don't think you even like wrote it in your backstory material. I I didn't know until you said it right there.
0: No, and I remember picking it, but I remember it being insanely arbitrary because of that yeah, because reason. Because it's lot. just there's one paragraph a pop, and I'm like, well, there's not enough flavor in any of these for me really to breathe. You definitely hear them. like. Batumbe
1: flashbacks and stuff where he's he's definitely against the Bekiar people mm-hmm. and like you can see why in this book but still like you probably got a paragraph about
0: why you know they're questionable at best. The difference there is that that one single paragraph in Heart of the Jungle is like they are Mwangi people that enslave their other people and everybody hates them. And yeah. But in here they have a full page where Although they don't paint those things in positive lights, they do certainly provide a lot more justification for it. So they talk about how they make packs with demons, but it's because they feel that it's kind of like a dark side Star Wars thing where, like, I can control the power to have power. You would
1: bring it to Star Wars.
0: Listen, I only have a couple frames of reference.
1: (laughs) It, it, I think I think you're absolutely right that there's a lot more nuance in nuance great word for in and I think the um, the black and whites painted by that one e supplement mm-hmm. just because it, it wasn't the space 300 pages 60 in that and obviously we're looking at this completely reimagined and in a different light and by writers that are actually invested in the cultural material I think absolutely.
0: so All right, so we did each pick one of the new ancestries to talk a little bit about. Haley, do you want to kick us off here?
2: Sure. Are they were spiders? Are they animal-human-spider combos? No, they're just spiders. They are spiders. They're (laughs) sapient spiders. It's amazing. I'm so excited. But those are the rumors of the area. So these are the Anandi, and they are a very peaceful Spider people—they're sa- <laughs> uh, sapient spiders. Steve, you getting
0: uncomfortable yet?
2: Yeah, so fantastic—they're so cute.
0: I had a little bit of a problem with this because I really, really don't like spiders, but. Somehow they they did make the art look pretty cute. They did. <laughs> I, I I gotta give it to them. They're like those fuzzy little the jumping, spiders. yeah, little yeah, jumping little spider. Yeah, spider. yeah, yeah. 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 and a they're nice like guys.
2: described as being shy, and they're like biggest one of their big issues is overcoming the fact that people have arachnophobia. It's just it's cute. So the Anande are a um, reclusive sapient spider, and they have at some point in their history. They wanted to avoid conflict so badly. So that's a big part of their culture is they're very, very peaceful, big, uh, very shy, they're conflict avoidance in a very severe way, as well as dislike of violence. Well, they retreated into isolation until they could find a solution back in their history. The solution was, with a fusion of transmutation and illusion magic, they have a humanoid form that is visible to others. So they show as human-sized spiders normally, but they have this humanoid form that would be based on where they were born. So the humanoid form could look like any of the other human ancestries. And it's interesting just the way that this goes about. And it's also fascinating because playing an adventurer that would be an Anandi would be fascinating to me because they are just generally don't like violence and like adventuring includes violence um that's always funny to me to like have something that's so stuck like that I'm a pacifist Yeah. pass my fist through your face so I won't talk about any of the details on how you build it but you do automatically get a change shape one action ability and a natural attack when you're in your spider form which is cool really quick want to just touch on these heritages because there's some of them that are just so good because they're all different kinds of spiders Mm -hmm. so like a snaring Anandi sounds like what are those the spiders that they like bury themselves and then they come out and attack
3: I don't like that spiders or trap spiders
2: yeah those ones yep Yep, there are venomous ones, which then you actually get venom. There's spindly and Anandi, which are basically daddy long legs.
0: I don't like that. <laughs> I love, love
2: that. that. It's so cool. <laughs> and you then get a grapple and trip because you are not a grapple and trip. Sorry, that's the snaring. But your spindly. You get to go from 25 to 30 feet because you're so faced with your long legs. <laughs> And I love that. Yeah. It's so, so. You can attest cool. how
0: fast the Daddy Long Legs are. <laughs> Damn, those yep. legs go all the way up. <laughs> I did have a harrowing encounter with an undying Daddy Long Legs while I was Why on a, just kayak a friendly Well, I murdered him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a story for another time. Honestly, it, it has to be a story. It, ha- it has to be a story for another time because it's so much longer than you would think. If it makes you feel any better, they are one of the most venomous spiders in the world. Damn.
2: But their mouth is too tiny.
4: Well, well, the it is small one's maybe. This, this one could have been small. big enough. Maybe it was, I mean, it was
0: fucking huge. But they're an Andi size,
2: <laughs> which, by the way, are five feet long.
0: Don't like it. Wow, uh-huh. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> they're big. Then one of the other ones is just kind of cool because it's the polychromatic. So that's a very colorful and they get impressive performance because they're just so colorful. They're like the peacocks. Yeah, it's super cool. And then there's, you know, obviously there's all the normal things that you would get when you go through an entire ancestry. They have some really cool art of some web based homes, which is just awesome. Uh, Check that out. And then when we talk about what they might want to do in order to become adventurers, That is, usually they want to learn more or support their community in some way or another. And if that means going on an adventure to support their community, that's what they'll do. So that's kind of how you would become an adventurer as an Anandi, which is so fun. And I really want to play
0: one. Yeah. The arachnophobia certainly is a thing for me. However, when reading through this ancestry, I did think this was one of the new standouts. I thought it was pretty cool. cool. They are super cute, even though I don't like where they're coming from. And I think they're referenced several times through the book where you could insert them in really fun places. Yes. So I did like that.
2: There's a couple in the bestiary in the back, too.
0: Ooh. Anyways. Uh, Anything else you wanted to add before we kept it moving?
2: No, that's it, I think.
0: Sounds good to me.
1: Griff, what are you bringing to the table? I picked my favorite race in first edition (laughs) that they ported to second edition now, the Gripply. Gripley are shy and cautious people who generally seek to avoid being drawn into the complicated and dangerous affairs of others. Despite their outlook and small stature, Gripplies often take a bold and noble action when the situation demands it. They
4: are
0: frog people! The craziest thing is, you guys listening weren't here in the studio, but Griff's eyes rolled backwards <laughs> and he just
5: started <laughs> speaking that.
0: <laughs> yeah, Gripley are frog people
1: and they are one of the smallest races besides, like, Pixies, which came out, or sprites that you can play—they they they reach a height of about two feet tall, and they are predominantly hunter-gatherers. This lends a lot of people to think that they are primitive, but they're not. They actually have sophisticated crop operations that they keep hidden Mm -hmm. from the rest of. Society, And so they're really good at like camouflaging their farming, their gathering, their, uh, all of the innovations that they're making. They kind of keep it to themselves. They are very attuned with nature and they, you know, they're just, just some great froggy boys.
0: Oh yeah, man.
1: There's actually, there's really not a ton that they expanded upon in this book about what the gripply are from first edition to second edition, they're mostly neutral. They tend to worship niche gods like fae lords and that kind of thing.
0: Oh, sure. Interesting.
1: So when I read through this, I was actually a little bit bummed. Why's that? Uh, I, I think my gripply boys got done dirty in, in this just based off of mechanics, which is what I wanted to review here. So, in the initial printing, Gripply have ability boosts to wisdom and free, and a strength flaw. What? So, I know this is something that is getting fixed, because they, there's no other races like this. Yeah. This is a, hopefully, clearly a mistake. I believe it has been addressed that they're supposed to also get dexterity as a boost. But, bummer that there's like an issue with my favorite race right off the bat the heritages that gripply have i feel like are all things that your standard gripply had in first edition all of them are aspects of a regular gripply in my head so there's the poison hide gripply which gets you toxic skin and gets you a reaction a unique reaction to kind of envenomate someone that does a natural attack on you or tries to grapple you that's pretty cool There's the snap-tongue gripply that lets you use your tongue to do stuff, which is great. There's the sticky-toe gripply that lets you climb better, and it helps you hold onto your weapons and that kind of stuff, so you get a bonus when somebody tries to disarm you or shove you. And then there's the wind-web gripply, which basically means your webbing between your fingers and toes is a little bit more robust, and you kind of float to the ground. My big gripe here is is both that ability boost thing and also in the Ancestry feats, I just feel like they didn't get a ton of love. Like, in the the first level Ancestry feats, you have your bog-standard lore and weapon stuff, and then there's a really cool reaction that's Hunter's Defense, which requires you to be trained in nature, so it's not specific to any given class. And then there's Jungle Strider, which is kind of just... If you're in a jungle, it's good. If not, it's not. Mm-hmm. But at fifth level, <laughs> there's only Gripply Weapon Innovator, which is if you took the Gripply Weapons, which is super boring in my opinion.
3: Every class gets... Er, every every ancestry.
1: race has that. And then there's the other two feats are tied to a heritage. Mm-hmm. So if you're not one of those two heritages, sucks to be you. And then there's Tenacious Net, which basically is if your level five feet is wasted... To, in a lot of scenarios. There's no 17th level feat. Nothing.
3: So. The Ancestry might be employed by Big Net Designer to
0: get more people using nets. But Chris, <laughs> we're going to have to cut that out of the episode. That's too real.
1: Too <laughs> close to the truth. Like the 13th level, it's either you can add 1d4 persistent poison damage when you crit with a weapon or with Scripply weapon expertise. It's just, there's not a lot here that's good. And that's kind of a bummer. Not that there was a ton that was amazing in the first edition Gripply, but it just felt like you got a lot of what the individual heritages give as a package. And it feels like that's not too powerful to give a second
0: edition Gripply either. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they'll get a better treatment in whatever the next version of the Ancestry Guide is. I really hope so, hope. too,
1: because I think there were either a Ruxy or Hobgoblins or something. Some of those didn't have a 17th level feat mm-hmm. originally, and they got one later on. So I'm hoping that happens with Gripley, because it just it's annoying to, like, okay, I have to take a versatile heritage if I want to play a Gripley, because otherwise my racial feats suck.
3: That's what I was about to ask, is, like, you, you feel forced to do that in an ancestral way. It's like, oh,
1: like yeah, I'm going to be a tiefling gripply. Okay, <laughs> but counterpoint, that rocks. It does rock. <laughs> yep. It rocks, but I just, I want to have options. Yeah. Like, I love the flavor of a gripply. They're, they're such a cool race, and to do them dirty like that is a bummer.
2: Can you imagine a tree frog with, like, a devil tail and horns?
0: Yeah, no notes. That's great. <laughs> I sign off on that in a heartbeat. On like
2: a little frog butt? <laughs> yeah. They're funny. That's
0: funny. That would
3: be good, but it still doesn't stand alone.
2: No, it does not stand alone. Right.
3: Out. Yeah, it's it's
1: not from the Gripply material provided here, which...
2: It's disappointing.
1: Yeah, is disappointing.
0: Anything else you wanted to add for Gripply?
1: Paizo, please release more Gripply material.
0: All right. <laughs> well, I think I'll go ahead and go next, and... Uh, Keep that depression train rolling. Uh-oh. So, oh. I I took a look at the brand new to second edition ancestry called Galoma. Mm-hmm. Galoma is a rare ancestry, and the physical description is they're basically humanoid-looking bipedal creatures which have these horse-shaped heads on which there are eight glowing eyes. Dude, Pretty they cool. creep me out. They, they, are, out. they are, are for them. Creeps me out so Yes. Much. They have this horse-like mouth on a chitinous face. So it's like a horse's head, but it's like the material that like your nails are made out of and there's a horse mouth it kind of reminds
1: it. me of like the with more eyes like the uh xenomorph head God a damn bit.
0: it you got ahead of me i'm oh, sorry Steve. yeah i wrote in my notes combo of horses and xenomorphs yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep and then they have this mane that legitimately is very cool that contains thousands of additional tiny eyes so you have your eight glowing eyes on your chitness face, and then you have this mane of, that has these little tiny glowing dots all over it. I think it's really cool, but then I start to have some problems because unless I'm wrong, like I said, I have not read the book cover to cover, but I did see this confirmed when I started to look up more stuff about Galoma online. There are only two drawings of this ancestry in the entire book. The ones on the Ancestry pages? (laughs) Yes, a brand new Ancestry. They only have two pictures of it. The only other photo I could find was fan art. So, that's not great. And then they're described as they fear most other people and deliberately use their unusual biology to frighten off those they consider to be dangerous predators. They're rarely seen and poorly understood. And... Their many-eyed and wooden-faced visages instill terror in most they meet. Well, there you go. That's why they don't have any pictures of them. Okay. Fair point. <laughs> the are the, <cryptid, laughs> the cryptid race. Fair point. However, I was really struggling to find any other flavor beyond that. They talk about they're a paranoid people. They're a reclusive people. They only go to a couple towns, but that's not what a civilization is not what a tribe is. Right, that's not an ancestry of people, right? Well, how do you work with that? And how do you make a character that's gonna
1: adventure based off of that as your baseline? Mm -hmm.
0: And so, I think that Paizo kind of writes in here the get-out-of-jail free card, why they didn't appear in first edition. They say, oh, they're virtually unknown outside of the Expanse. Okay, well, give me something to work with. Like what you were saying, Griff. So, if you're building a Goloma character, I don't think... It's a bad mechanical build. You get wisdom and a free boost at character creation. There's this trait called Eyes in the Back, which gives you additional areas when using a seek basic action, which isn't terrible. Oh, does that give you like two cones? Yes, two cones. Then there are some interesting heritages. I'm not crazy about all of them, but there's one called Frightful Galoma, where you get intimidating glare for free and you're trained in intimidation. Okay. I feel like That's- they should all have that. <laughs> yeah, well, you'd think. And then there's another one called Vigilance where you basically get to detect magic at will. When you start going through the feat chains and what you can do with this ancestry, a lot of the cooler ones, honestly, uh, most of them are eye-based. So you have watchful gaze that gives you all-around vision. That is at first level, which can prevent or break a flank for an action, which I think is very good. You have ambush awareness at five, where you get plus two on perception checks to roll initiative, and you win in ties against creatures, which is also, I think, pretty good. Ooh, yeah. There's constant gaze at nine, where you can't get flanked by a creature that's lower in CR than you are, which, again, I think is pretty good. And then at level 17, True Gaze, one action per hour, you give yourself a six level True Seeing spell. So I think there's opportunity to mechanically build a character that really effectively uses their eyes. I just wish I got some of the juicy lore that some of the more traditional ancestries like the elves or the dwarves got I mean, there's 30 pages on elves and I have virtually nothing to build a character with for Galoma, which is unfortunate. Hey, if
1: I didn't want to play a Gribbly that poisons people, guess what? That cuts my feets almost in half. (laughs) If I'm not a snap-tongue Gribbly, cuts my feets in half.
0: (laughs) You know, I, I do hope this ancestry gets a little bit more flavor. I picked it because I saw the art and I got creeped out a little bit. And I'm like, ooh, I want to learn more about that. And unfortunately, I I wasn't able to. So maybe it'll come up in the future, and I would be so on board with it. But I just feel like for something brand new that we're debuting in this really, really cool, flavorful book, I don't have the flavor I want.
3: Well, you know, maybe if you guys aren't too hot on those ancestries, there may be other things in here that might entice you.
0: Ooh, like what,
3: Chris? Well, I'm here to talk about the gnoll. Ooh, tell me more. Well, I think... This one's kind of special to me because I think that if the gnoll had been around before we started Curse the Crimson Throne, I may have built Diego as a gnoll. Really? Oh, yeah? I think it definitely would have been something I considered. The art, yeah. Yeah. They are basically big old hyena-like humanoids. They got short muzzles, sharp teeth, large ears, essentially an anthropomorphic hyena. They're described as very pragmatic hunters, like... Honor is not really a thing with them. You win by any means necessary, so they're doing the ambushes, the pack tactics, all that sort of stuff. They can be misunderstood a little bit because they've got some interesting customs, too. They consume their dead as a sign of reverence. Which is not something that most people do or (laughs) consider to be something that's good they hold a grand feast and they eat the uh, deceased and they transform their bones into either art or weapons or stuff like that. Or maybe they keep them as a souvenir. They also do that with respected foes as well. So if you're playing an all null party and someone falls in battle, maybe you bring them back. Maybe you, uh, you give them an honorable
0: ceremony. You know what? I'm glad you didn't pick this ancestry for Diego. Vec looking juicy. Like a snack. Yeah. I I mean, Got pretty high charisma. You snack.
3: So let's get into some of the mechanics of them. You know, eight hit points, medium size, 25 feet. Strength, intelligence, and free is your boosts. Wisdom is your flaw. So you muscle wizards, you muscle investigators, you muscle alchemists covered. You got them all. <laughs> got them all. You, got them all. you got them all here. You do any of them. Yeah. heritages can take a, a larger great knoll heritage and get 10 hit points instead of eight. But if you don't do that, you go with the sweet breath knoll heritage, which... You're a little striped pale bird knoll with oddly present breath. You're trained in diplomacy and you get a plus one to make an impression if people can smell your breath. Mm-hmm. So you're going around breathing on everybody you're talking to just to get that extra little plus one. As we all know, plus ones and two we give you give you that little extra bit that you need to get over the crit edge. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you're breathing on people. Feet wise. This is again, it only goes up to thirteenth level feats, but there's some good ones in here. So maybe wait, wait you, you skipped my favorite Noel. What knoll? The the ones
1: that
2: are little, little ones, the little little knolls, adorable (laughs)
0: parts, so cute. Yeah, I was
2: really confused. I was like, why did they put a child in this?
3: The ant knoll. Yeah, yeah. Those are
1: well, the witch knoll. I think is the creepy one, and I like. Yeah, yeah. Those are. I really. I think. I think the. I think the. Of the ones I've read, the
3: heritages for the knoll were really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna put my conspiracy theory hat on there and wonder why they didn't come out with the grassy knoll ancestry. You got to ask those questions.
0: <laughs> Somebody on our Discord posted that question for us to answer today. I, I didn't pick it, but I guess there you go, whoever <laughs> <Yeah>. asked it. <laughs> gotcha. Maybe I unconsciously absorbed that. Anyways, let's talk about some of the feats. Okay. Go
3: up to 13, which is meh, but there's some good ones in here. Feat one. Level one, you can get a hyena familiar. So go ahead and score that however you will as a uh, anthropomorphic hyena.
2: That's weird. Oh, it's
3: like Goofy and Pluto. Yeah, a little bit. Uh. That's
2: like the Tengu that gets the bird.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you like it. <laughs> you love it. And the, and the rat folk that gets
3: the rat. Yeah.
2: It's weird.
3: Uh, you can also take the sensitive nose, which gives you the imprecise scent for 30 feet. That's common in some of these ancestries. It's not a bad choice. Fifth level has some interesting stuff there. You can, if you take the Witch Knoll one, you can cast Ventriloquism, which is pretty cool as a distant cackle. Uh, you got your basics in here. The interesting one here is right hand blood, which is a really strange one. You can take a, a point of damage to feed someone blood from the right side of your body and administer first aid, or you can take 2d8 damage to treat disease or treat wounds instead. But if, pray tell, you forget your left and your right from each other and you feed them blood from the left side of your body, you causes the check to crit fail automatically. So, no idea what their circulatory system's like. I'm assuming this is they're pulling from something specific to come up with this idea.
1: Yeah, I wonder where that's from. Yeah.
3: yeah. But it's very interesting.
2: I'm pretty sure it's an old uh I don't remember what it's based on, but essentially it is said that like the right side of the hyena is healing, left side is diseased. Huh. I don't remember what that's fun.
0: If from. you say so. Yeah, I have yep. no frame of reference for that. You don't need
3: healer's <laughs> tools for this. You get a plus one item bonus just from the, huh. just from your blood. So maybe most useful blood in the game, question mark? Who knows? <laughs> level nine feats, if you're taking the sweet breath knoll like you should, you get that breath like honey feat. Breath <laughs> like honey. You cast enthrall as a third level occult spell once per day uh, with a range of 30 feet and the inhaled trait instead of auditory, so... Uh, what that breath do? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Doing a lot there. Circumstance bonus if you if people can uh, if you can breathe on people to make an impression goes up to two. Plus two. Okay, it's good. It's so. good. Uh, if you just want to take a normal null feat, you got grandmother's wisdom, which you carry around the bones of your ancestors, and sometimes you talk to them. It acts like augury, basically, twice a day. So, That's dope. Yeah, you ask your ancestors for insight, and they respond back. They do a little augury's the wheel and woe thing, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So you could be wheeling. Wheeling and Dealing. Wheeling <laughs> and Dealing. you can't um, have
1: honey breath like at the same time.
3: Yeah. 13th level, you got the normal weapon expertise, but you can also, with your Ancestor's Rage, use Animal Form uh, once per day as an innate
0: spell at 5th level with a Canine
3: Form stipulation. Nice. So, yeah. yeah,
0: I, I like it. I I, again, think that's one of the standouts of the new ones. Yeah. Uh, very good. Very good. I so, think you could technically
1: pull off null in first edition but they were one of those like monstrous
0: races I think so yeah. yeah all right folks well I think that was our little recap on people of the Mwangi let's move into religion this is a section of that details 12 new deities for the system plus an other gods section that details the relationship between the Mwangi people and Desna the green faith Gozra Mamashtu, and Adirceus pretty dope cool stuff about that I think you should check it out. We're not going to focus on that because we got other things to talk about. I'm going to kick it off with a discussion about the brand new deity called Telehar, also known as the Rising Sun. So this is a deity whose areas of concern are iron love and rebirth. The veneration here is dawn and rebirth, like the areas of concern. The physical description, I, I certainly hope this is not... Uh, Rude thing to say, but it's like a Beastars esque lioness. Yeah, she that's it's, fair. is. It's a female human body with the head of a lioness, kind of like the characters in Beastars. So, what I've learned about this deity is she is one of the three gods that was displaced from Mazali with the rise of the child king slash mummy Walkana. I believe we're about to. Oh, well, we're gonna talk about Walkana. Yeah, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that later. But her areas of concern, she watches over new birth and beginnings, specifically calling out in this section, those who are coming to terms with a new gender or sexuality, and she protects those who seek refuge. So this is a goddess that Paiza was like, hey, if you want to explore new sexuality or a new gender for your character, or if that's something you just want to channel from yourself into your character and explore, this is a goddess for you. I think it's super cool, super inclusive, and I really love it. I think it's pretty great. There's not a whole lot more for me to say on this goddess, except, hey, check it out because she's cool. Let's move on to Haley. What do you got?
2: I have on um, the spider theme, Grandmother Spider. Of course. I had to keep with it. So I really love this art, by the way. She is got six... Kind of spindly arms with claws She's very very cool Like her a lot She's also known as the weaver I just I need to read these edicts out to you guys Go ahead Because they're good They're really good Be skilled and clever Think for yourself Take due payment for your work Humiliate the powerful. Hold on, what? (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. I love that. Um, So that's amazing. And then um, in general, an anathema for her is uh, abuse someone that you have power over, harm someone that's given you sincere kindness, let a slight go unanswered, and own a slave. So, really all about that. Uh, Again, with the same with the spiders, Uh, community and taking care of each other. But I really like just humiliate the powerful. And that's what she does. I believe it. It's amazing. So she was originally the weaver for the fate of the gods. But as she likes to humiliate the powerful, she crafted unique humiliations tailored to each of the gods, which is so cool. Oh, Um, my. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So as she weaved in the fates of the gods, she's crafted these unique humiliations for each of them, so it says that some of the more prideful gods deny her still, and that worshiping grandmother spider is forbidden by Asmodius as long as she's.
4: <laughs> so good.
2: As long as she still twirls copies of his keys around her fingers, which she's got.
3: Oh, the implications there are mm.
2: crazy. As well as Abadar holds a grudge still since the century of the unbalanced scale, which she has cost. Damn So Oops. Yeah <laughs> She's super cool
4: She's a little tricksy
2: Yes <laughs> I love her She's very awesome By the way Her brother Is the red mantis
0: Oh Yes Really Yes
2: Wow And so here's the thing She's dangerous enough alone Because she also has All the secrets of the world In her web Naturally twists the fate of the gods you
4: Got the whole world <laughs> In then, her web
2: Although, like, you know, Red Mantis, he doesn't usually get involved. But if someone has lashed out at Grandmother Spider at all, there is disproportionate retribution. Which is also amazing. (laughs) And so, yeah. and, And, like, one of the big things is she likes to uplift anyone who rebels against the status quo and really fights for freedom. Freaking awesome! She sounds a little tricksy. Very cool. And also, just, like... Humiliate the powerful is a great yeah. thing.
0: <laughs> Everyone's scared of her because she got an extra key to the dead fault. <laughs> yeah. 10 out of 10. I, I love that. That's so good. I'm surprised. I really haven't heard much about her till now. I, I've i heard her name. She's a before. I think. She
2: is, but there's but not only a lot of briefly yeah. and yeah. mostly just mentioned as the red mantis, sister, which is not enough for her. Not enough. She needs a whole thing. She's got it. Which is cool.
0: All right, let's keep it moving here. Chris, who are you bringing to the table? I am bringing Uvuko to the table, which is a dragon-like
3: god, also known as the Diamond Ring. Areas of concern are metamorphosis, cycles, growth, and fertility. So, first of all, he is very long. He is like a (laughs) long, like a a dragon depicted in the Chinese fashion, almost. He looks like he's like... The art of him is him... He's like a flying serpent through the clouds. Yeah, He's almost. undulating through the clouds. Um he isn't like
1: the Dragon Ball Z dragon a little bit,
3: right? I uh, haven't seen a single episode of that, yeah, unfortunately. Okay. I'm outing myself here as someone's. Yeah, I'm sorry. Leave. But yeah, they say that his body forms the boundary between earth and sky, and that his twisting in the air creates the clouds that bring rain to the and water to the thirsty, that his scales till the fields and bring plants to to grow. So he's this not say a rastal analog, but the a god that brings life to the region. Another thing that I thought was, was really awesome about him is that he seems to be this god of like good vibes only, too, because he is described as very innocent and shy. And arguments or misery, even like a cross word spoken in anger, caused the god to flee and just go away. So all the priestly people try to summon him, try to create a nice place with good positive energy for him to like come and chill out in. Some edicts of him. Really, just embrace change in the future. You know, master adversity, all the sort of adaptation stuff. Interesting anathema stuff here, which is like, don't allow yourself or your surroundings to stagnate. Use vile or cruel language, or you know, the obvious, crush an egg.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yes, (laughs) you're right. I was so waiting for you to bring that up.
3: (laughs) So, do not crush egg.
0: Favored weapon maul. For whatever reason. That's surprising because I feel like that could easily crush an egg with that. Yes, but having the the power to do it and doing it are two very different things. Yeah. That might be the best point that's ever been brought up on this show. Very interesting guy. (laughs) Very wise. All right, cool. Griffin, bring us home on the religion section. All right.
4: In the right corner, he stands immeasurably tall, weighing in immeasurably heavy, the world shaker, he who is massive, Balamda! Woo! Crowd goes fucking nuts. Beloved are my new favorite god, the god of gains. (laughs) Uh, He is the neutral god of great size megafauna and strength. He, his edicts, grow as large as you can. (laughs) Shelter those smaller and weaker than you. Tend large animals and megafauna. Anathema to Balumdar. Accidentally injure someone with your great size. <laughs> Topple a massive natural monument.
5: Which you could easily do. Use magic
4: yep. to assume a form smaller than you are. Come on. <laughs> Come
0: on. Favored weapon, the Great Club. Only go up. Only, Only go up. The gotta gains.
4: Balumdar his art looks like Shaquille O'Neal. It literally just looks like (laughs) a towering, tatted up Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, he is such a cool god. The other gods see him as brutish, but all respect him because he towers over all other (laughs) gods. He's very interesting. He's a neutral god that is worshipped by
1: neutral good, neutral, and neutral evil worshippers. And the neutral good and neutral evil worshippers take different stances on this, grow as large as possible. (laughs) The neutral evil uh, worshippers seeing that as an excuse to harm all that are smaller than them. Mm -hmm. And the neutral good seeing that as a, I guess, an obligation to protect all of those smaller than them. But either way, his worshippers gain as much muscle
4: or fat as possible. It is just what they do. Grow as large as possible is their deific observation but he's
1: followed by a lot of druids the, the saurian druids like those that tend to dinosaurs and turn into dinosaurs and that kind of thing mm-hmm. he's concerned with like elephants and dinosaurs as part of his worship and there's mention of the elephant people revering blumdar but they don't have a name for him which is strange, but he doesn't seem to care that they don't have a name for him because he, he
0: cares about the game. He cares about the game. <laughs> in the in the HLP garage gym, we should just like Belumdar. get his edicts like put up on the wall.
3: <laughs> Thou shalt grow as large as you can. <laughs> can I bring up the best thing? He sometimes appears as a city-sized animal. Uh, just a city-sized animal. <laughs> he rolls
4: in as a city-sized
3: animal.
2: A city-sized <laughs> animal?
4: Or, or just a massive
0: storm. Yeah. He just shows up. Yo, I'm a storm now. Alright, well, hey, cool. I'm
4: a storm. big piggy. <laughs> <laughs> uh I I'm really a fan of this god.
0: <laughs> That's fucking great. Yeah.
4: So uh you know, his domains are might, nature, and protection.
0: He's a chill dude. All he cares about are the games. Oh yeah. I really enjoy that. Um, give us more Balumdar content. <laughs> more Balumdar. <laughs> please. Paizo, you've heard it here first. All right. Next section here is geography. Now, Chris, Griffin, and myself have had the opportunity to dive into this a little bit. This section is nearly half the book clocking in at 142 pages this is the meat and potatoes of the book
3: this is what like i feel like their Mm -hmm. main main focus was yes
0: so if you took my advice earlier and read the timeline and found something cool that's probably where you would go after this i i read something cool about the lost city of co all right cool go to lost city of co and you'll get 30 pages about it right yeah fucking rocks. Yeah, we're gonna have to condense this, because I
1: think I think each of us picked a city, and the cities mm-hmm. are so much content.
0: Yes. Well, I picked a country, but I'm gonna talk about cities, too. So, uh, Alright, yeah. right, let's start again with Chris. Oh my goodness. So, I
3: found a city that, initially, when I fl- was flipping through this, I didn't think this type of city I would get caught up in, but the art initially caught me. This is the city of Jaha. I think that's Yaha or Jaha. Um, it is depicted as a nocturnal city always a city in night and there is this great architecture these large vaulted terraced buildings and the reason that I got caught up in this is this is an ancient city filled with unsolved mysteries and haunted by past wrongs I am a sucker for this big unexplained mysteries that you just get the little little bit bits of hints to kind of tease out what might be going on in this and they don't explain this by any means and I really hope they write more about this because it's great. So, background. There's really only two periods in the city to understand. The Jaha up until the last decade, which is it's it's a city mostly populated by humans, but humans that were very deeply xenophobic and it actually enslaved the Iroxy lizard folk that are in the region. They first occupied the city these lizard folk, but the Jahans developed this very strict theocratic society that uh, essentially its origins are rooted in astronomy. They're very very astrological people and they felt that there was this star prophecy that gave them Jaha as a birthright. Um, so very uh, a whole sect of philosopher priests used to live here who studied the stars and apparently they were somewhat advanced in their magic and tech and arcana. But within the last decade everyone in the city disappeared. The enslaved lizard folk, and the humans and only recently within the past two years have people been going back into this city to populate it there's only about 7,000 people in there right now trying to make us understand what happened what was going on there and and what they were up to I'm
0: sorry I, I would not do that
3: yeah, it, there's the entire city gets abandoned. Out. I'm just gonna move in. No. So the people who are coming back in are actually a coalition of both humans and the Iroxy, like astrologers that oh, were in other cool. parts of the region. So they've got a coalition together. They're not like opposed or mm-hmm. anything anymore. they're just trying to understand what this weird xenophobic society was up to. So yeah, their their whole purpose, especially the Iroxy, are trying to discover and understand and preserve Jahan, all of its arcana. The entire city. Is filled to the brim with lost secrets. There's tons of unexplored places, places like stones all over the place, and, and with runes that they don't understand. They're just constantly finding out more and more about the city because of how recently it's been discovered. There's a, a shitload of strange phenomena happening in here. The steaming earth is, creates this haze that spills into the streets. Some days that fills the whole region and abstracts all the buildings and geometry. There, there's just flora and fauna that are spilled all over the borders of the cities and most of the residents experience these strange dreams that plague them at night which is why all the city has flipped their waking hours to the nighttime everyone stays oh, inside like they sleep. Just don't want to be yeah Ooh. everyone oh. is awake during the night to avoid that so the dreams only happen at night yeah the dreams are some some people dream of abandoned gardens untended uh, and there's mention of these strange blooming plants at night, too, that people apparently used to tend that they're still discovering. Some people dream of towering ethereal beings below the streets. There's just a bunch of really weird stuff going on here. The whole city is literally nightlife, which is why in the artist depicted depicted as a nighttime view, essentially. Everyone's always out and active during the night. So the hooks here are crazy, but they don't give an explanation for what's going on, so I really hope this isn't part of some adventure that's coming up soon. A lot of the exploration is being done by Rooksies. Below the city, there are these complicated weaving catacombs, and based on what some people are finding, there are some that seems to move around and reconfigure in strange geometric shapes. It's very, very creepy. They're moving of their own accord for some reason. Uh, There's also talk in in the content about the four fortresses that are each in each border of the city. If you look on the map, it's a very square city. The walls are very square one of the fortresses the moon fortress has been left completely unopened and those who enter never return some do later at a time but they are undead and they are babbling in a language that no one understands a bunch of really creepy hooks there um because i i didn't really bring it up as much in this but all throughout this passage is rife with references to star charts and astrological signs and stuff like that the very central dome of the city has this illusory magic in it that builds the inside of the dome with an accurate real-time depiction of the night sky of Galarian, which knows how that happens. Sometimes the dome even like dilates and opens up randomly, and no one understands why that's happening either. There are these waystones that people are trying to open up and exploit that sometimes teleport them to different parts of the city and discover new things. On the In the passage, there's a a D10 roll that you can make if you activate a waystone that takes you to a random place with a bunch of cool things that happen there. Right. Ooh. Like that. This city is incredible and I want to know more about it and they don't have anything else. so <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: all I got. I got hooked the second I started reading into this. This was a blind spot for me. I hadn't read anything about Jaha or, or Yaha. Again, we're not exactly sure how it's pronounced, yeah. but taking a shot. In 1E... I didn't have an opportunity to read this section for this review. Now I'm going to read it because everything you described fucking rocks. Well, did it exist in one? I, 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 oh, look, I don't know. I, look that, but I feel like probably that's it's a name that I feel like I've heard before. OK, okay. but I could be wrong. But about probably that. brief references. Yeah, right. Anything else you wanted to touch on before we get to moving?
3: I think that's everything. Obviously, each of these references I just want to call out have amazing discuss about the resources that are there and the points of the city, so if you got the book, check that out.
0: Cool. Alright, well, the next section we're going to talk about, I'm going to take us through Vidrian. If anybody knows me, or has known the characters that I play on this show, I play a character called Salmoon Nile who came from Sargava. Mm. And Vidrian is new Sargava, so I feel like I had to talk about it. But it is a really interesting area of the Mwangi Expanse that touches on some really difficult subject material. So I think it's really interesting to explore and read about and talk about. Let's get into it. So what is Vidrian? Essentially, there was a colony of the Empire of Cheliacs in the south region of Moria expanse called Sargava. Cheliax had a civil war, Sargava backed the wrong person, and when they realized that the guy that they didn't want to win the civil war was gonna come after them, they signed a deal with the free captains, the pirates in the shackles, to keep them protected as a somewhat independent nation. Now, in first edition, Sargava is a pretty problematic region. There are lots of references to enslavement of the local peoples. It feels a lot like South Africa apartheid. It It is rough. It's really difficult subject material. And somewhere between first and second edition, these slaves and repressed peoples banded together and overthrew this leftover colonial government. They renamed the country, the capital city. She used to be called El Adair. It's now Anthusis and more. They installed their own government, which instead of being ruled by a monarch or a governor or something, I believe the ruler of Sargava was a baron. It's now ruled by a council instead of a single ruler. They were soon after seen as a new legitimate government by civilizations all over Galarian, including Absalom, Andoran, Osirian, and Ravenul, which, for those of you who know your one e-events should pass, Ravenul makes a lot of sense why they would back rebels. So, the economy that they have built right now is established on these old, leftover cellist industries that popped up lots of farming and mining, but they took basically what these people left, and used their once outlawed local practices that had existed long before the colonizers came to make what they were trying to do better. And Sargava was very heavily invested in exports. Vidrian basically continues that, but they do it in a more respectful way to the land and the peoples around them than their Chelish overlords back in the day. Another part of their economy is basically tourism. So it's still this entry point for northerners to explore the expanse, but instead of going into the expanse and taking things from the local people and going north and selling them, they have local representatives who will accompany expeditions into the expanse. And it's more like tourism than it is like looting and adventuring. So it's a pretty cool spin on something that was happening before, but in a way where they can inform people rather than take away from their existing culture, which I think is an interesting spin on that. There are sections in the Vidrian part of this geography section on fashion, lifestyle, all the represented parties on the Vidric Council, that's the ruling council of their nation, they talk about religion. There's a really cool, interesting call-out within that religion section. There's a special note about devil worship happening behind closed doors. For those of you who know Chelyax, you know that that is an empire that is largely driven by devil worship and contracts made by devils. So the leftover Sargavan colonists that have integrated with the native Mwangi people who now rule their own country. Some of them still have ties to the old nasty devil stuff, and they worship behind closed doors. What are they doing with that? Who knows? But it's kind of creepy. Reading that passage reminded me a lot about the Watchmen HBO series. The main character is a black woman who one of her very, very close friends is, is a white man who passes away and she is at his house and like uncovers a Klansman outfit. And it felt like that to me. It's this really creepy behind closed doors bleeding into reality. It's it's an interesting thing to put in here. But it it feels very close to reality. Some of the um like weirdness that people harbor towards what whatever you guys know what I'm saying right yeah okay so then there's a, a fun note here that I wanted to put in there are these lions that exist on the career River Delta that there was flooding once and these lions got stuck on the Delta and they weren't able to get back off but there was a lot of game there and they had to swim a lot and now they're ripped. Ah, Jack Lions.
4: And it's just like. Alumdar be praised.
0: Exactly. <laughs> there's this weird the little about like,
4: hey, there's all these jacked lions in Victory. No, don't fight these jacked
0: lions. They're real right. jacked. <laughs> sure. Um, but then there are several pages on specific subsettings within this country. They have a big section on the capital city of Enthusis. They have a section on the Scorched Fields, Port Freedom, etc. These are old places that are reimagined post-colonialization from first edition to second edition. I'd highly encourage people to read and compare and contrast some of the differences between the past subject material and the present. It's very cool. One of the more interesting ones to me is this moral dilemma around what's called the Nemeri Valley Cattle Ranch. The owner is the granddaughter to the founder of the cattle ranch, who was a Sargavan colonist who always treated his plantation workers with respect. He paid them fair wages, he gave them good jobs. But as this revolution happened, this, this granddaughter turned the land over to the natives and instead of having any claim to the land whatsoever, she's just kind of an investor in their operation, lets them run it, gave it back. But this naturally leads to some interesting moral questions. Some say that she should leave entirely and give up any pretense to owning the land. Others see this as fine, and hey, some of these people who came to our land or were born here, are now part of our society and this is a good symbiotic relationship and there are some of those old weird sargavans that i talked about who probably worship devils and stuff who want her dead now obviously that's not the right answer but what is the right answer the book does not present a right answer that's one of the difficult moral dilemmas that this section proposes to people reading it it's not very clear at all but I think this section in particular in this book puts some very difficult subject material in front of the reader and really makes us think of things that affect people in real life, which I think is really cool. So the nation in general has a cool resolve to remain free, but just because they broke free of their old colonial oppressors the region still has its own unique set of problems, which kind of mirror some of the problems that people see in real life and allow for a lot of new adventures and stuff to explore in games. So they were able to break free and they were able to get away from their protection from the free captains, but in doing so, Bidrian signed a contract with the people of Senghor, which is a very strong naval power that contract however, was signed under duress and heavily favors so what's gonna happen there the Vidric people are in a contract where they are getting taken advantage of is there an opportunity for a cool adventure there who knows what to do like i mentioned earlier with the leftover Chellish settlers not all of them are bad but they can't go home cheliacs ain't going to take them back what what do you do with them the government has some really uneasy truces with the criminal underworld and this really shady organization of folks called the rivermen that's strange there's always a looming threat of outside invasion of people taking advantage of this fledgling nation and then the native peoples themselves have differences of opinion among the local populace on what the definition of freedom actually is so is it freedom from all external nations returning the land to the way it was beforehand? Um, Should they take advantage of the things that they learned from their old colonizers and make them better? It's not easy. I don't think there's a clear answer, but I think this in particular is a section that deals with a lot of very real problems and I can see this being very difficult for some people to play in, but for others I think it allows an opportunity to maybe vent some frustrations through TTRPG and really explore some difficult subject material. That works really well with some groups, for some groups it doesn't, you know, if that's not your style, avoid it. But I do think there's a lot of really cool and interesting themes to play with here, so I like what they did with the region. Clearly, there's a lot of ground left to travel. We'll see how it goes. That's all I got. Is it? No, not really. I have lots more notes. Yeah, but, I was going to uh, say, you're going to read the whole section to him. Woo! But uh, all right, Drift. I think, uh, well, unless you guys had comments on that, you're going to tell us about it different.
1: Yeah. Place in the- uh, well, Chris presented night, so I will present day. Oh, I think I know what you're doing. Yeah, I'm <laughs> going to talk about Mazali, the Deathless Empire. It is a divine theocracy and one of the few instances on Galarian where there is an actual deity running a city. My lord. Let's get into it. <laughs> so, Mazali is this ancient temple city from an ancient empire that was ruled by these sun kings. Who died out? Wait a second. My
0: beer is called Sun King Brewery.
1: Yeah. Whoa.
4: Whoa. Oh, no. Oh, no.
1: And so they were overthrown by Muwaniza, um, however you say that. And so, like, these Sun Kings were supposedly descended from deities. When they were overthrown, things got really bad for Mizali. And this temple city is on top of this huge necropolis and explorations happen there all the time. It kind of reminds me of Wati yes, in, yeah. uh, in Mummy's Mask. There are explorations all the time into these necropoli uh, to find ancient artifacts, magical items, and about a hundred years ago, a mummified child with the markings of a sun king was brought up out of the necropolis. A few years later, Chilaxian colonists—a ten thousand of them—descended on the city.
0: They're bad, I'm telling you. They're bad.
1: Descended on the city to claim it, and the child rose to undeath and rained the power of the sun down on the Chilaxians, incinerating ten thousand people in an instant.
3: Hang on. Just the, the just the sun. Just use the sun. This child <laughs> is a god. This child is
1: Walkenna, who you can read about in his deity entry earlier in this book. But Walkenna is undead sun god, child, king, who rules Mazzali not- now and has lot. ruled Mazzali for the past 100 years. And Mazali has prospered but at quite a cost because children can be fickle and Walkenna's rule is absolute. And so outsiders are banned from Mazzali. Walkenna believes that all of the Mwangi Expanse needs to unite and needs to banish all outsiders. And so this city Kind of reminds me of North Korea or like uh, 1984, the book. Everybody must start working at dawn as Walkenna addresses his people. Because of the sun. At noon, <laughs> oh. everyone must pray to Walkenna. Depending on his mood and how reverent the people are, he may keep them out in the blistering sun. For hours before he allows them to return to work in the shade. And then at dusk, everyone must remain indoors. Those that do not are killed. What? While Kenneth sees all while the sun is up. And what he cannot see at night, the secret police that he has do.
0: <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to live there. So
4: this city is absolutely bonkers
1: in terms of it being a 1984 analog. There's a resistance movement you've probably heard of them called the Bright Lions. There's I think an archetype that came out before this book about them. And there's an area of the city that's not as policed by the secret police. And they have a network and this well called the Moon Well that restores their vitality and so they like strike out and they're infiltrating the Walkenna worshippers and Walkenna's inner circle Walkenna has this inner retinue of powerful undead and it's said that he turns his greatest supporters and greatest enemies into undead to serve him damn he's fickle He's a kid, and so at dawn, he's at his happiest, and he's easy to please, and that's when he wants to see his citizens. By midday, he's shrewd and tactical, and that's when he meets with his city council. At night, he gets angry and paranoid, and by dusk, he begins to order his secret police around, in nefarious ways, no one has seen him in the dark. But as it gets darker, his body goes from more vital and childlike to shriveling to his true undead form. Mm.
0: Sorry, Rasmiran. There's a new badass totalitarian <laughs> regime in town, and, and, and it the, has
3: a real god and, and it's a kid and the gods it really makes you think like we're in our late 20s like what are we doing doing? (laughs) we're
0: not gods we don't have a
1: cities so there's all kinds of cool stuff in Mazzali there's a bunch of plot hooks that would I think it would be difficult to do an adventure in Mazzali you definitely have to get integrated with the bright lions early Mm -hmm. because it would be difficult for a low level party to keep safe but it's just such a cool concept like, the totalitarian city ruled by a true deity is... And, and just the deity, in and of himself, is kind of a misnomer of a god to begin with. Like, an undead sun god that changes with the phases of the sun, or changes with the sun cycle. Very strange. But I won't go into too much detail about it, because honestly, a lot of Mizali is a mystery. People can't wear white or yellow. Walkenna gets jealous of worship of other sun deities. Wow. Walkenna allows some worship, but any worship of a deity of the moon.
0: Death. Death.
3: Death. Damn. Based on how like restrictive and like crackdown, like I feel like a foray into this city would be a great high level, like part of an adventure as like a high level party.
2: Yeah. It'd be oh, absolutely. A cool. Like get in get someone and get out too.
1: Yeah, Yeah. like a stealth mission. There's There's this cool building, and this kind of represents how oppressed they are. There's this cool building called the Sunlight Inn where it's half the old city crumbling relic and the rest of the building was built out in this really thick glass and you can rent a room in this inn and it allows you to see the night sky.
0: Oh, and the glass lets the sunlight in.
1: So the just like you want. Well the yeah. people people that live here rent rooms because it it's so restrictive that like you can't lay under the stars, but you can in this inn. Huh. Very interesting place.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Another section that I did not read and I will read tomorrow. All right. We touched on three parts of the geography section, but like I said, 142 pages. Everything in there kind of rocks. I have not read it. Well, that's misleading. I have not read it all, but I am confident based on what I have read that everything in there rocks. All right. The last segment in this book is the bestiary. Not all of us had an opportunity to really dive into this. I flipped through it. There appeared to be some pretty cool creatures. Haley, I think there was one that you wanted to touch on, though.
2: Just briefly. This is a species of creatures that were created, well, really formed to what they are today. Based on a bet with the god Lamashtu. So... (laughs) Of course. There we go. (laughs) These are Aiga Muxas. Aiga Muxas. And they entered into a wager with Lamashtu saying that they could stand on their hands longer than any other creature. Lamashtu produced a chimpanzee and pointed to its feet and called them hands. The giants, because these are giants, could not hold their positions. They fell... Lamashu then moved their eyes to their feet and told them, if you wish to boast of your ability, let this be your blessing. So these are people who have no eyes on their head, but eyes in the middle of their feet. So that's also crazy. But part of that makes it very difficult for them to truly hunt. They do a lot of traps, so they bury themselves into the sand and then pop out and grab and try to eat people. But they're almost always hungry because they're not actually great hunters. And then they also have a very specific gait that looks more like it's constantly dancing than it is a walk or runs. But it's so fast, like it's incredibly fast to the point where it's really hard to estimate the distance that this is away from you because it's so fast with this weird dancing movement and uh, every now and then it goes off and stands on its hand and points its feet out so it could see which is just, it's just a really cool concept. It is a, um, actually from a South African legend and myth as well, which is just, that's cool and it's not something you see every day. It's also, holy crap, just look at some of that.
3: Uh, I don't like. That is terrifying (laughs) very pans Labyrinthy. yeah
2: Yeah, so one of the ways to get away from it and that's this is again like a well prepared adventure would have chilies or some sort of spicy dust or um
1: oh yeah and like spray that behind them
2: throw that on the ground yeah so they have a chance to get away legos which is oh god oh (laughs) jesus cow traps which is so cool So, yeah, that's the one I want to talk about. There's a lot of other cool ones in there as well. And like I said earlier, there's some Anandi uh, bestiary people in here. There's also an entire half a person in here, which is cool. There's a lot of really cool things in the bestiary as per usual. We don't need to dig into any more. But I wanted to share eyes on the feet, people.
0: Yeah. When I was talking a little bit with our buddy Tim about this book, I was talking about all, a lot of the cool stuff that I mentioned earlier. And he's like, but have you heard about this one creature? <laughs> and he was he was so hyped about it. I, I'm so I'm so happy that you brought it up because they're wild.
2: They are. They are. Oh, and they can swallow whole.
0: Oh, boy. <laughs> all right, folks, it's time to what it's all come down to. We're raiding Lost Omens, the Mwangi Expanse the system that we are going to use zero to ten Keyway watchers so these are the giant statues that are around Keyway, which we never talked about but it's right we never city, talked about you should check it out <laughs> yes um very prolific in the slithering but we are re- i don't know we, we're doing Keyway watchers we're guys. doing zero to ten <laughs> zero to ten Keyway watchers all right so if you have any final thoughts pros cons now would be the time to say them and then tell me your rating. We're going to start with Griffin. Uh, I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I think it it
1: has so much great flavor is very well written and is a great glimpse into this area of Galarian. My only docs are if you're not going to play a game in the Mwangi th- there's not a ton out there right now to play in the Mwangi And so this book isn't very applicable for a ton of people. Uh, If you want to make a character from the Mwangi, definitely get it. But there's a huge majority of this book that isn't really relevant to you as a player. Uh, There's not a lot of mechanical things in this book, which I know is not the purpose of the Lost Omens uh, line. But what is there, uh, at least for me, was a little bit disappointing. And. That's the only thing I can say bad about this book because the rest of it is absolutely phenomenal, and um, and I think the, the art just like pushes it over.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're gonna be echoing each other a lot here. Very good points there, Haley. Zero to ten Keyboy watchers.
2: Eight, and honestly, for the exact same reasons, very um, specific to one region. It's an amazing deep dive, but. It's so specific, and right now we just don't have that much content with Pathfinder 2E right now.
0: Absolutely. All right, Chris, 0-10 to Keyboy Watchers. I'm evaluating this in a vacuum. My expectation of it
3: coming into this was for it to flesh out locations in the Milwaukee Expanse. That was my major expectation. I had a minor one of uh, getting some crunchy content um, that relates to the Milwaukee Expanse. It knocked it out of the park on the locations. The art is amazing. The detail in this is extremely impressive. I've looked through different parts of this book. I still have way more to look through. Overall, I want to give this a 9 out of 10 because I think it achieved the overwhelming purpose, which is flush out locations. The only reason I'm docking at points is because it doesn't quite have the crunch that I was looking for. But I know that's not the main purpose of this book. This book makes a promise to me. Because it fleshes out locations, but there isn't a lot of stuff in the Milwaukee other than the Strength of Thousands, which I don't know how much of the parts is covered. The Slithering is centered in Keyboy, which is a module that came out before this book came out. Conspiracy theory hat I'm spoiled on. Spoiled in this book. <laughs> yeah, conspiracy theory hat on. I expect other modules. I think to come out that deal with other locations in the Mwangi Expanse. I want that. I mean, I would hope that because they dedicated almost twice the amount of pages in
1: this to the Inner Sea Region book. So that would be amazing because we have so much
3: detail in here. This book sets out a promise that we will get expanded content and adventures in these very, very flavorful settings. That's what I will look for in the future from Paizo
0: awesome that's a really good review I, I like everyone's opinion here i think i'm going to echo some of those sentiments but i did want to bring up a couple other things when i went to learn more about this book and some of the stuff in it i stumbled upon some of the amazon reviews and actually some of the things that they bring up are worded probably better than i even could so i'm just going to pull a couple quick things that i thought are important to bring up What this book does is change it from a dangerous place to visit to a dangerous place to live. The more the perspective is changed from external to internal on regional books like this, the absolute better for the health of the game and the quality of characters, in my opinion. That comes from a user called Spork on Amazon. Also, another review that I found very enlightening This book is an incredible take on African-inspired fantasy setting. Rather than indulging in colonial stereotypes, it seeks out and amplifies African voices to incorporate their legends to create something new, an immersive world to explore and tell new stories, rather than a shallow veneer of eroticism over Western stories of colonialization and conquest. That is from a user called Jared on Amazon. Those two points I think are very important. This is a culturally significant book for people of African descent and people of color in the TTRPG space. It does that incredibly. Like you all said, the art is incredible. The history section, I think, is a fantastic jumping off point. The geography section is fabulous. There's so many hooks for cool things. I really hope we spend more time in in the Mwangi Expanse in future adventure paths and modules as well. This book is responsible because it asks questions to the reader to make you a better player, a more responsible player in the region if you're just visiting or creating a character in it. It does not shy away from very difficult topics and themes. It challenges the player to explore those. It's kind of what I want to see from the Lost Omens line going forward. There is a line in this book that references a Qui-Gon Jinn quote in Star Wars episode one, where they say there's always a bigger fish. I think that's very funny. I'm glad that that got snuck into the book. And also there were a couple negative reviews on Amazon that were one stars and they were all very racist. So, um, it makes racist mad. So that's cool. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> um, I'm going to give this book a, a nine out of 10. I, I don't think I can give it a 10 for the exact same reasons that I think you all brought up. I love what this book does. However, it is mechanically light. There are no items in it whatsoever, I think. Uh, I know that's not quite the intention, but I just kind of wish we had a little something, a little flavor to play with there. And like I said earlier, they do a fantastic job of treating the established ancestries with respect. And some of the new ancestries are standouts, but the ones that aren't standouts, really, I need more. Uh, Griff, you had some problems with the gripply mechanically. You heard I had significant problems with the gloma from a flavor context. So maybe that'll be something that's remedied later. But I think in light of all of those really good things I said about the book, that's a very small concern of mine because, frankly, it does fulfill the promise of the premise of making a really cool book that is flavorful and beautiful and treats this area of the world with the respect it deserves. Nine out of 10. All right, across the four of us, we're averaging 8.5 out of 10 Keyway Watchers, which I think is a very accurate score for what we're dealing with here. I would call this a buy. All right, folks, we are way over time and we have a little bit left to talk about. So Chris, give us a quick general overview and your thoughts on The Fists of the Ruby Phoenix.
3: Yeah, so the Milwaukee Expanse book isn't the only book that came out around this time. I have read all the books of the Fist of the Ruby Phoenix, which is a three-book venture starting from 11 that goes to 20, uh centered in Tianjia. So, basics of the plot. There has been a Ruby Phoenix tournament that has been happening in Tianjia in Goka specifically for the last 300 or so years. There was a very very powerful sorcerer called hao Jin who vanished around that time leaving an array of artifacts behind her. And in her will, it stipulated that the bank of Abadar was to hold all these objects in a vault. Every 10 years, they would have a tournament. The winner of the tournament would pick an object from the vault, and these are artifacts of incredible power. This year, Hao Jin has returned from wherever she came from, and she has decided to officiate the tournament, so there's more hubbub about the tournament. The first book is a preliminary round that before you are one of the eight teams that qualify for the tournament, you have to make it through a survivor-esque competition <laughs> of being sent to an island called Bonmu, which is a very dangerous island full of a lot of wild, nasty <laughs> things and complete tasks to qualify for the tournament. What I love about the first two books in this is that it gives an incredible amount of agency directly to the players. The first book is basically entirely a hex crawl where they get to decide where to explore, how to complete their tasks. The second book, there are a bunch of Goken institutions that if they qualify for the tournament, they get to choose the people whose influences and alignments they feel they identify with. and tried to influence them as allies for their tournament they get to go through the whole tournament it is not set in stone that they win the tournament it is an actual tournament that they can get knocked out of so there are stakes from the very beginning it feels like there is very huge investment in the players being able to win and uh feel like they are good at their teamwork and there's emphasis on teamwork and feel like they can be the winners of the tournament it feels very good for them to win these things Um, there's some twists obviously there's a whole other book to talk about that I can't talk about at all without any spoilers they uh, use influences from Asian martial arts movies and stuff like that very very well overall if you have players who have played Tui and are excited and interested in playing higher level Tui I encourage you to check out their interest in these books and run them there's a bit of front end prep on the GM for some of these things but it pays off they are very good adventures and I really recommend them and it you, sounds you, like a blast
0: you are running this soon right you got people playing I have already run the first session Ooh. and the players are already very
3: excited about what they know and what they're about to do
0: hell yeah uh, you said it was for higher level players uh, what's the level range for reference 11 through 20 nice that's quick leveling for three le- for three books that's nice yes it's, cool. it's great alright um, I know we're trying to do this very quick. Haley Griff, you got any uh, things you want to ask Chris or anything before we move on? Uh, was it as respectful as this?
3: Yes, it absolutely was. And the the aesthetic is definitely there. There are parts of TN Job that you explore that are very cool and um, just very, very. I used the word aesthetic already, but the aesthetic
0: is is very cool right? I know we also promised this at the beginning, so can you give me a two-minute overview of Malevolence? Malevolence, Haunted House
3: Adventure, takes place when these, these like some of the esoteric influences of other uh, entities and stuff that you see in Galarian. I don't want to go into too much details. I want to keep it vague, but if your party is into like Lovecraft stuff and and things like that, they'll like this adventure. Surprisingly, it's a, it's a, it's a low-level adventure. Um, I think...
1: I guess three to seven.
3: Yeah, three to seven. But for low level adventure has surprisingly high stakes. So Paizo and Tui has done a very good job with their modules of making even low level adventures have extreme consequences. This book is no different. But if your party likes horror movies, if they like the haunted house aesthetic,
0: they'll like this. Very cool. Yeah, this is one that I was excited to hear a little bit more about. Like you said, I don't know what the stakes are. You say they're high. The Slithering, if you fail that, like a half of the world gets wiped out. Like it's big stakes for a little module. So if you say the stakes are high, I'm into it. Global consequences. Ooh boy. Global consequences for what was kind of pitched, I think, as like a uh haunted house. a haunted house. Yeah. Very cool. Anything else you wanted to throw in there before we move on to listener questions? No. Okay. All right, our first couple listener questions are for me specifically because people know that I really have a lot of passion for the Mwangi Expanse and was very excited for this book. So Sir Newt asks, what bits of lore are you going to take inspiration from with regards to Matume's backstory slash cultural knowledge? So what I will say is I don't know that I want to call out some specific things because I think that'll be better if it just comes out naturally in character, but I am already doing this. I did write a to-be-heard-on-the-mainline-show backstory moment that explores a region that got significantly more love in the Lost Omens Mulangi Expanse than it did previously. And I'm planning to be leaning pretty heavily on the expanded geography segments going forward. That's like 142 pages of this book because there's so much flavor and I'm going to be able to pull things from that to talk about Matumbe's past and his relationship with other peoples and how he lives. I think there's a lot there. I'm very excited to move forward with Matumbe and pull some of this New, old, uh, I'm, I'm gonna make some of this retroactive. It'll be cool. I'm really excited for it. Um, the other similar question comes from Bipolar Ion Tart. What new information do you wish was around when planning Matumbe's backstory? Um, this is kind of a vague answer, but honestly, basically all of this. I think in a lot of Matumbe's conversations about the Mwangi Expanse and some of my backstory moments, things are somewhat vague. And I wish I had a lot of this stuff going into character creation so I could speak intelligently to it in the moment. One of the things that I think we kind of talked about earlier, I specifically wrote him as a member of a tribe on the Savannah. But like there wasn't there wasn't really a, a a good description out there of what of like a Savannah that had cool juicy stuff that was by a jungle because there is backstory where he goes up against a jungle and stuff. Um, it it would have been really great to have the few pages that are in this book about the Mogombo planes when planning that because that fits exactly where I would have wanted to put him. So I think like kind of retroactively, that's where he's from. It fits perfectly with the things that I've described and uh, yeah, maybe that is where he's from. Uh, those couple pages specifically, but Truly, I know this is vague, and so that makes it not a great answer, but I kind of just wish I had it all, so I could have Yeah, everybody that. wants as much
1: information as possible on where their character's from. Exactly, so... So you get
0: lucky if you made a character from X or something. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Our next question is going to be to the table here. Sir Newt asks again, what were you most excited for when the book came out? I'll kick this one off just because it's quick. The stuff I mentioned earlier, you know... I just wanted to learn more. I I have all three of my characters on the Mainland Show, Matumbe, Saw, and Mr. Serpent, came from a different part of the Milwaukee Expanse, and I was pulling from kind of obscure reference guides and that kind of stuff. I just wish I had this big ass book to pull from and make really cool, juicy backstory stuff. Chris.
3: My expectations were simple. I wanted locations and lore to be expanded upon in this, and they knocked it out of the park. There were three or four different locations I was reading about that sucked me in immediately, and I was very, very excited about reading, and I just thought they were amazing and interesting. And yeah, that's all I have to say. It satisfied my expectations. Great.
0: Haley, what were you excited about?
2: I wanted new, never before seen ancestries. We got them. Like,
0: oh, oh, we got him.
2: And I was excited about that. I, uh, that's something I always like. Um, and then the extreme amount of details that I can use this as a reference book for. Yeah.
0: So you were pleased with the Daddy Long Legs ancestry.
2: Yes. Naturally.
0: All right, Griffin. New Pantheon of Gods. Yeah. I was very excited for the new gods in here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I should have known you were going to say Bulumber again.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: yeah, I was I was very excited for the new deities, and I think the ones that are in here are so cool.
2: They are so cool.
0: I mean, we only touched on what like four of them. I guess we talked a little bit about. But there's what a lot kind of, of but... there's a lot of specifically new ones in here, which yes. I, I actually wasn't
1: necessarily expecting so many new ones. Mm-hmm. But that's awesome that there are so many.
0: Yeah, I'll also uh, give a, a fun shout out to some of the old ones too, like. The art for the Mwangi envision or oh, like Perception the, the, of Desda? Yeah, like, really cool. Where, where she's an African-looking woman with an afro that has constellations floating in it. Fucking rocks. It's so cool. So they did uh, have some really cool stuff on those couple pages as well. But yeah, the new god pantheon w- was fantastic. All right. Next question comes from Lord Deathquake. Can you speak to the improvements made to how the area is written about versus 1E, not just in detail, but in terms of cultural sensitivity and being more aware of harmful tropes? Has this book done enough to rehabilitate some of those missteps from the 1E Mwangi lore? I'll, I'll jump on this one first and you guys can chime in, please. I don't think it's up to us to say whether it's done enough but the public seems to have a positive perception on this book which i perceive as a positive step in a new direction it tackles we're not the right people to No ask. i <laughs> i i really don't think we're the ones to answer this question it tackles difficult concepts with respect um but i think the book also still acknowledges that there's work to be done if we're going to compare 1e versus 2e perception in mwangi expanse i think look at the heart of the jungle the liter- this is the 1e mwangi expanse specific supplement the literal first paragraph contains the sentence the expanse is the antithesis of modern civilization and an adventurer's paradise that fucking sucks that is a really terrible way to describe a region versus on page two of the Milwaukee expanse lost omens there is a call out or a little sidebar I believe written by Jabari Weathers called exciting not exotic That is a fantastic paragraph for the sake of time. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the fictions that we paint in their spaces reflect and pull from real people and places. And your exotic is someone else's existence. It's a really cool little call out and sets the tone for the entire book. Yep. Any other thoughts, folks? I don't have much to add on top
1: of that. Nothing to add. Yeah. just don't read the one shit anymore.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Yes. Alright, uh so you need a snap block, I guess. How would you use Fliptown in an adventure? This also comes from Lord Deathquake. You no, know, Griffin, I know you're a pretty big fan of Fliptown. I'm Town. a big proponent of Fliptown. What's Fliptown? Real quick.
1: So there's a Gripply named Flip. He went on a riverboat uh, <laughs> and I think entered like the plane of water or something. Something wild. Uh, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but he came back with like some kind of magical power has this huge barge that he has turned into kind of a shanty town and also a gambling den. But the proprietors of the gambling den are adventurers or outsiders or fae or, and the things you win are favors. Mm. And so flip town flip is this just magical gripply. Uh and <laughs> Fliptown is this magical floating moving around gambling hall. It's very very frogs on a steamboat type thing. Uh and really cool. It just just got a short paragraph in here but uh I would absolutely do an extra planar adventure starting in Fliptown.
0: hell yeah. Uh Chris Haley, would you gamble on a Grippley's riverboat? You
3: kidding me? I would make a 1 to 20 adventure
0: in Flip Town. In flip Town. Oh
5: my god. <laughs> you Chronicles start out. Uh,
3: okay. <laughs> you start out with a lowly adventure with only your basic wealth at level 1 in your pocket. You go into Flip Town and you start gambling. If you run out of money, you lose the adventure. But if you keep making your way up and getting more money, you get favors and you get to use those favors and you get to go and on extra your adventures and you get to deal with the first world and all that other shit. You work way up to 20 just doing the same shit. And flip, and then man. you become the new flip, and you become flip. You fight flip at the
4: end. Flip is the big bad. Flip is the big bad. <laughs> wow, that's. But if you can gamble it up, you can. Can I join that game?
3: Piso, write to me. I have things. <laughs> I have things for you. So, Yeah. yeah go I ahead. wouldn't
2: run something at this point. Uh, I think I want to play whatever Chris is building there.
0: <laughs> whatever cracked out scheme. <laughs> <I>, I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> All right, perfect. So again, from Lord Deathquake, we're going to go around the table on this one. Chris, what region would you like to see get the same treatment next as the Lost Omen? It's easy.
3: It's Darklands. Please give me more Darklands content. I've read all the 1E Darklands content. I need more. I read Underdark stuff from D&D now, even though I don't like D&D that much. Just they have more Darklands ideas. I don't want more Darklands content. So give me 2E Darklands content. You did Adventure, Abomination Vaults and stuff. You already got settings fleshed out, but please give me more. I would like
0: a setting book in the Darklands, please. All right. That was surprisingly <laughs> succinct. Uh, Haley, what do you think?
2: I always want to say first world, but no. I mean, that's too much for the first world that's moving all over. It's a
4: whole world. But I would, I
2: would really love it. But also, it would be kind of cool to get more T and Shaw stuff, because I do like that area, but it's sorely lacking in information.
0: Yeah, big agree there. Yeah. Um, Griff,
1: your thoughts? Uh, Arcadia, absolutely. Mm. Oh, yeah. that's a good yeah. answer. Yeah, we, we, Arcadia is a blank slate.
0: I want to see Arcadia fleshed out. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good answer. My answer is mostly the same as Haley's. I think the... First world? Uh, No. Uh, a, a I, I think the, the easy next one is to do T and Ja. I think it could have the same, if not a similar, IRL cultural impact where we start exploring more Asian themes and bringing cool Asian writers to build this area of the world that we don't really hear enough about. I think there's so much in Asian mythology to pull from. I think we could make a really, really cool setting there and have some awesome adventures that take place there based off of the new hopefully lost oh, omens Tianja source book. That'd be cool. but honestly, I would take all four of these books. Yeah. First World, Darklands, Arcadia, Tianja. Ja. Four months in a row. Let's go. Let's do it. And finally, we have another question from Sir Newt. Griffin, you have a physical copy of Lost Omens, Mwangi Expanse in front of you. I need you to flip to a random page and we need to give the listeners a one shot involving what's on that page. So I flipped to a random page. It is page 162. Steve, you're gonna get a chuckle
1: out of this. Mm-hmm. There's Always a Bigger Fish is on this page.
0: That was this page?
1: That's this page. Oh,
0: me <laughs> so this is
1: This is the page about Lake Akata. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And, uh... This, this, I think, with the closing of the World Wound, is the new World Wound thing. This is like a source of demonic power and the heart of the Mwangi. I think this is the high level demon slaying adventure.
3: There's lore in the book about this, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah. So I
1: think No More World Wound. Lick a Kata, man.
3: If you see some new stuff in the history section about this, I mean you know what's up.
0: Alright. Well, I think counterpoint to anything you guys brought up, what probably should happen is three adventurers get in a subnautical craft. Uh, A bell-shaped device? Yes, and go into Lake Akata, and then you find out that it actually goes through the core of the planet. The core, yes, the core. Yep. (laughs) And preferably, well, maybe one of the characters is an NPC that says something like, Monsters out there, leaking in here, we saw all sinking and no power, When's the use of thinking we are in trouble? Indeed.
2: Okay, I have a serious one. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you could build a cool module off of going to go find Old Man's Well, which is the like what what is supposed to be where they search for eternal life. I think that would be a cool adventure.
1: That would be very cool. It's just we were
2: That's in the lake.
3: It is in the lake, but it's further in this book. You know what I think?
2: Oh, I'm so sorry mm. that I you gotta be broad about Lake Akata.
3: You know what I think? I think you could park Town on the lake.
4: Fuck. Just, Just parked yeah. out by the lake. Yes.
2: No.
3: Eighty miles from Keep away. Keep away. <laughs> Keep away. Boy,
0: three people are gonna find that joke hilarious. <laughs> That's for you, fellas. Alright. Yep. Well, I think that about does it, everybody. So quick wrap up here. Just a couple call outs. We have finished on the Leak Legacy podcast, the no response from Deepmar module. That is in my rearview mirror, and I have a lot less stress in my life. But Haley's up next. So tune into the Patreon exclusive Link Legacy podcast show that premieres biweekly on Tuesdays. The first episode of Her Arc Season 3 Realm of the Fel Knight Queen debuts on August 10th. It's unbelievable. It sure is. Uh, besides that, we have Drunken Discordly for the $10 and up patrons happening on 9 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, August 7th, and a live Zone of Truth on 4 p.m. Eastern Sunday. August 15th. Note, Sunday is not Saturday. Usually we do have these on Saturdays, but we're doing a Sunday fun day.
1: Sunday fun day.
0: Hell yeah. So Chris, Haley, Griffin, thank you so much for spending some time with me. You guys know I'm super passionate about this part of the world. I loved the book that we reviewed today and had a lot of fun with you all. So
2: thank you. Thank you, Steve.
0: Aw. Chris, are you going to thank me? Bye, Steve. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> Haley,
0: you specifically succeeded. your will say, didn't take us home, <laughs> finish your drinks, see you in two
4: weeks." Later. Bye, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>